Section 22 of Gallipoli Diary. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sue Anderson. Gallipoli Diary by John Graham Gillum. Section 22. December 17th to 31st, 1915. December 17th. Early this morning we have showers of rain, which are followed by a southerly breeze, quickly blowing them away. Brilliant sunshine makes the day quite hot. During the night I receive orders to issue two days' rations tonight to the 88th Brigade and the rest of the division, and afterwards to embark with all Army Service Corps details along with division headquarters. I am down on the beach in the afternoon getting our kits shipped off. At five o'clock the Turks open fire with two guns onto the beaches and beach roads, and the first few cause casualties. The shells are first class and burst with a deafening crash. One gun is on Seri Bear, and the other is on the hills on the left of Anafarta. They continue until shortly after dusk, about 6.20 p.m. Five minutes after, the beaches are alive with men once more and the work of evacuation proceeds energetically. This bout of shelling makes us anxious, as it would appear that our plot has been discovered. I go up to Commander Royal Engineer's dump and issue two days' rations to the 88th Brigade and the few remaining odd units. We leave the balance of the reserve supplies. They are too near the line to be burnt on the last night, and we leave them as a present of thanksgiving to our enemy, the Turk, who has played the game throughout the campaign. I say good-bye to the brigade and express the hope that I shall see them all safe and well in Egypt, where I believe we are going for a good rest and refitment. Nobody can deny that the 29th deserve it. I go back and have a last meal with Horn. Our camp will be deserted tomorrow, yet if an enemy aeroplane sails over, no change will be noted. Our dugouts are left standing intact. I, with the details, go down to Y, forming up post, and there meet, as on previous nights, parties and companies of men arriving. I call the roll of my men, and am instructed by the adjutant of the Commander Royal Engineers to fall my men in behind the division headquarters party when the order is telephoned up from West Beach. A wait of three-quarters of an hour. We hope no shells will arrive. Horn comes up to say goodbye to me. I wish him good luck, not envying him his wait of forty-eight hours. Tonight is X night. The order from the beach arrives. All are called to attention. We march off through the main supply depot, down into the trench, over the open space of West Beach along the pier. A short pause here of ten minutes, and then, in single file, we pass up the gangway, over the sunken ships which act as a breakwater to the little harbor, and so on board a paddle steamer. In half an hour she is full. It is a lovely moonlight night. We steam out into the bay, come alongside a small steamer, and file on board her. I go up on deck and view the scene of Suvla Bay by moonlight. I can hear the crack of the rifles from inland, and also voices from the beaches, now and again a torch is flashed as a lighter crunches upon the beach. With a soft, swishing sound, a lighter glides past us to some other ship. 
the whole bay and foreshore is bathed in moonlight, and as I look, all those eight months of hardships, gloom, and danger pass in review before me. A feeling as of a great burden being lifted off my mind comes over me, and a sense of extreme gladness that at last the long-drawn horror is past. And what horror! Never again, I think to myself, never again. I look towards Anzac and notice that the whole sky is aflame, the stores are alight, probably a stack of supplies which has caught fire by mistake, and then, as I look, a curious mist arises, low at first, off the sea. As if with an invisible hand, a cloudy cloak is slowly draped over the whole peninsula. First Suvla, then Anzac, and the coastline becomes blotted out, and I see now nothing but a gray mist. Suvla Bay and its horrors, its hopes and disappointments, are lost to my sight forever for by the time the mist has dispersed, the ship has moved away. December 18th. After a good night spent on the floor of the wardroom, lying on my British warm with my cap as a pillow, I wake up about 7 a.m., wondering where on earth I have got to. I hear that now delightful sound, the pulse of a ship's engines, and know with a happy feeling that I am sailing on a ship to the friendly waters of the harbor of Lemnos. No breakfast is to be had, for all troops, officers, and men, except myself, have embarked with rations. Stupid of me to forget myself when it was my job to see that all troops went off with rations. I explore the ship and cage a topping breakfast of eggs and ham off one of the crew. I go into his cabin and eat it on the QT. At twelve o'clock Lemnos heaves in sight, and at one o'clock we enter the harbor. It is all but five months since I was here last, and the camps have doubled and trebled their size, and doubled and trebled their number. As we pass the French and British battleships, monitors and destroyers, the respective crews come to the sides of their ships and gaze with interest at us. But there is no demonstration. When I last passed these ships five months ago, the crews cheered us and cheered again as we passed out to war. Now they look on, gaze at us, and say nothing. It seems almost a reproval. We take up our moorings amongst other small ships which have come with troops from the peninsula, and after a brief delay are transferred with baggage to the Southland. Ah, this means sailing for Egypt, probably. Egypt! It will be like sailing home. The Southland was the boat that was torpedoed early in September. I go and look at the damage that was done. A great hole was torn in one of her holds, and it was lucky that she was able to reach Lemnos, fifty miles away from the spot where she was hit. We learn that the 86th have passed to Hellas, and soon we are to follow. Good Lord! This is the unkindest cut of all. So we are not done with it yet. Well... I don't suppose the Turks will let us get off scot-free this time. I draw food for the men on board, and at 7.30 p.m. go down to dinner. The last time that I dined in this saloon was in those days in April, just before the original landing. The officers of the King's Own Scottish Borders were dining here then, and their bagpipes played them into dinner, 
many for the last time in their lives. We have a merry dinner party with champagne. After, I enjoy the luxury of a hot bath and then turn in. December 19th. It is topping being on board a nice ship again and back once more to civilization. I row round with the skipper in the morning to one or two ships in harbor and after lunch go over in a pinnace with some officers to the shore, calling on the Aragon on the way where General Delisle and Colonel O'Hara join us. Firth, O'Hara, and I, on reaching the land, walk up to a village in shore and buy eggs. It is delightful being able to stretch one's legs without having to carry one's ears at the right engage, in expectancy of the whistle of the enemy shell. We have great fun purchasing eggs from old Greek ladies, six from one, twelve from another, and so on. When loaded up with them, we get back to the pier, on to a waiting pinnace, and so out to the Aragon, where O'Hara entertains us to tea. We learn that we are not to be on the peninsula long, only a matter of three weeks, and then we and the Royal Naval Division will be relieved and taken to Egypt. And so, the sooner we are back there to get it over, the better. We get back to the Southland and have a cheery dinner, which we make the most of. Tonight is Z-night, and as we sit talking after dinner, we wonder how the work is proceeding. Last night everything went satisfactorily, no shelling, and news this morning shows the Turks have spotted no change. December 20th. Suvla is Turkish once more. All troops left without a casualty. The evacuation proceeded all day yesterday. The scenes on the beaches appeared as normal as ever. At nightfall, all stores that had been intended to be evacuated had been safely shipped. All that were left were the skeleton stacks of supplies waiting to be set alight, useless ordnance, and the supply of emergency ammunition. The beaches were shelled as usual in the day. Night fell, and those left on the beaches, except the evacuation staff, were hastened on to the waiting ships. At dusk, a few monitors and destroyers quietly slipped into the bay, standing by in readiness for a Turkish attack. The ration carts that were left were promptly shipped, not a mule being left. In fact, every hoof was safely embarked. Then began the last stage. In succeeding waves, the remaining troops fell back in perfect order to the forming up posts. In a steady stream, they were hastened off onto the waiting ships, until at last the supreme moment arrived. The message was telephoned to the line that all troops behind those few men who were waiting a few yards from the unsuspecting Turk had left Suvla for good and all. Here and there a man fired his rifle as a farewell salute to our gallant enemy, but no man was permitted to fire without an order. With their boots wrapped in sandbags, they crept back, down the communication trenches, out onto the roads, past the first gate, which was immediately locked, the news of their passing being telephoned to the beaches. Past the second likewise, then the third, and then straight to the beaches, finally on board and hurried off with great dispatch when the evacuation staff knew from their statistics that Suvla Bay was free of every Britisher but themselves. Hastily, Army Service Corps officers run round the frameworks of the supply stacks in the depot with lighted torches, and quickly the supplies are ablaze. Then, 
a rush is made to the waiting pinnaces, which merrily puff out to the battleships. Meanwhile, the officers detailed to wait at the casualty clearing station are picked up by pinnaces, for no rearguard action has been necessary. The Turk was lying ignorant of it all in his trenches, crack, crack, cracking his rifle. If he had only known! At last, not a living Britisher was left on Suvla or Anzac. Every dugout, nook and cranny was searched, and it was with great interest that the evacuation staff viewed the scene from the battleships as daylight broke. The fires burnt fiercely and quickly. Turkish shells came over as if to hasten the destruction of the fire. Complete success had been the reward of the excellent work of the staff. Still, the Turk did not know that we had left. He saw the tents of our hospital standing, but the deserted appearance of the beaches must have made him wonder. The morning wore on. Puzzled, a few venturesome Turks peeped over the parapets of the trenches. Nothing happened. They climbed over the top, walked over no man's land into the deserted trenches, and the secret was discovered. We had evacuated lock, stock, and barrel under their very noses. Down the roads they came in small parties. A few muffled noises were heard, by which the watchers of this strange drama from the battleships knew that the bombs that we had laid cunningly were claiming victims, fighting our battles for us without our being on the field. And so they came to Lalababa, and some German officers, with a characteristic insult to their brave ally, hoisted the German flag as a token of a German victory, though the honors of the day were with the Turk. He, however, had won not by beating us, but by our being beaten by nature, the impregnable fastness of the mountains of Suvla Bay and the Gallipoli winter storms. How a Turk could allow a German flag to be hoisted is beyond comprehension. One day Germany will fall shamefully to the dust in the eyes of her Oriental ally, and Turkey must beware of that day on which she can expect no mercy. The last crowded ships arrive in Mudros Harbor. The shore becomes thronged with Australian troops, who, more fortunate than ourselves, are bound for Egypt, while we, after lunch, embark on the Partridge and sail off with our general once more for the peninsula. It is a chilling, depressing voyage to Hellas, a journey made by me now for the third time. I hope it will be my luck to make it yet a fourth time, for that will be after the war. We have a meal off rations that we have brought with us. The boat is crowded with troops, and they do not seem very cheery. Night falls. At eight o'clock we see in the distance the starlight sailing up and down inland on the peninsula though it is hard to discern the outline of the shore. Soon the lights of a hospital ship are discernible ahead. Suddenly two flashes are seen, one after the other, from the Asiatic side. Two booms of guns are heard about fifteen seconds after, followed by two piercing shrieks, and the shells burst with a bright flash of flame on W Beach. And so we are in it once more. Shortly after we see the dim outline of the shore. We heave to and anchor off V Beach. After a wait of half an hour, lighters come alongside, on which we get and are towed to a pier running out from V Beach. 
which now, in addition to being protected from the strong currents of the Dardanelles by the River Clyde, is protected from the outer sea by a sunken French battleship, the Messina. In consequence, the water inside the pier is like a mill-pond, while outside a heavy swell washes against the sides of the two ships. I am on V Beach once more. It does not seem to have altered much since I left on August 20th last, but appears perhaps more orderly than it was then. More light railways are about. Foley is there to meet us, and it is good to see him safe and well. Up to a fortnight ago, he tells me, it was very quiet on the peninsula. In fact, they have been playing football matches in the aerodrome. And on shore, in a large dugout, the band of the Royal Naval Division have been giving concerts. But lately, two guns from Asia have been throwing over at odd intervals of the day eight-inch naval shells, and life on the beaches is becoming jumpy again. Also, some new guns have been placed in position on the slopes of Achibaba, which have been worrying the rest camps further inland. He tells me that the Turkish ammunition had improved in quality. This was what we had found at Suvla, due to Bulgaria's entry into the war as our enemies, and the opening of the road from Germany to Constantinople. The war will not end before this road is cut by the Allies. We shall never succeed now in forcing the straits, and so this road will never be cut in this manner. We must, however, hang on to this end of the peninsula, and I pity the troops who will be detailed for duty to do so through this winter. It will not be the twenty-ninth, for shortly we shall be leaving, and this time for good. Three weeks, I think. Three weeks only on W Beach, the bull's-eye of a target. C'est la guerre. As we march up onto the Hellas Plateau, we notice fires burning in the distance up the coast of Suvla, the Suvla supply depot and other stacks still burning. On arrival on the high ground on the left of W Beach looking inland, I turn into the same dugout which used to be our home in the early days of this round in circles campaign. Matthews is there to welcome me, and a new officer named Harris. As I turn in, I think of our old dugout at Suvla, now occupied in all probability by sleeping Turks. How strange! During the night I am awakened at intervals by loud explosions. Only Asia firing on W Beach at intervals. One bursts on the slopes of our cliff, and large lumps of earth fall on our tarpaulin roof. December 21st. I am awakened by a few shells bursting on the beach. After breakfast, I meet our new commanding officer, Colonel Huskisson. I dined with him in Ritchie's dugout in May last, when he was officer commanding Main Supply Depot. I learned that the beaches get shelled now heavier than they were ever shelled before. During the morning, I walk inland with Bell along the light railway system, which runs from the beaches and branches in several directions over the Hellas Plateau for a distance of about a mile. Mules pull small trucks up from the beach to the high ground behind the beach, where the mules are unhitched, and the trucks, with their own momentum, run down the plateau, which is on a gentle slope. Bell's idea is to have a supply depot at the end of the railway on the plateau, and to issue from there to horse transport, which will come up one wagon at a time. Should transport collect in any spot on this plateau, it immediately draws shell fire. I am struck by the way transport goes about in daylight, and under observation from the enemy. 
certainly not in long convoys, but in single wagons or two or three together. Achibaba looks more formidable than ever and bleaker. In fact, the whole tip of the peninsula looks far more cheerless than when I was here last. A strong southerly wind is blowing this morning. This afternoon we have rain, and as night falls our rest trenches are sloughs of mud, for hardly any work appears to have been done on a system of drainage, and the men have no roofing whatever. In fact, at Hellas, corrugated iron is practically nil, although at Suvla we did have a small supply. Do they honestly believe that they can hang on this tiny tip of land during the winter? Just beyond the end of the railway, the ground is thickly lined with camps, consisting of rest trenches. These now lead right up to the system of deep trenches forming our front line. Behind where I am standing at the end of the railway, at a distance of three hundred yards, there stands a very large hospital of tents and huts. This could be destroyed utterly by Turkish shell-fire in half an hour, yet it stands untouched. No large bodies of troops or transport are allowed to collect or pass near, of course, but small parties of two or three may pass by. Division headquarters is about two hundred yards behind, dug in, in trenches. On their left is the west coast road overlooking the sea. The 87th are in the line, and a part of the 86th the remainder being in rest camp trenches. The 88th have, of course, not yet arrived. Our artillery are practically in the same positions that they were six months ago. December 22nd. It is quite calm now, and a fine day. Thus we are given an opportunity of digging the mud out of the trenches and to work on a system of drainage. But we want roofing badly. Unlike V Beach, now a perfect harbor safe against almost any sea, W Beach, at the first heavy swell, becomes impossible for landing any supplies. Engineers are busy as usual on the piers, not on construction, but on the work of repairing the damage done by each spell of rough sea. The storm that we experienced at Suvla did not spend its fury on Hellas, though they felt the outskirts of its force here so much so that the flimsy piers off W Beach were almost washed away, and for the time we depended on the courtesy of our French allies to land stores and supplies on V Beach. Number one pier here, however, is fairly safe, for we have two small ships sunk at the end, set at an angle forming a breakwater. But they are too small to make the harbor as secure as the one at V Beach. We should have sunk ships six times as large, all along the shore off W Beach, lighters lie three deep, washed up by past spells of rough weather. The scheme of having our divisional supply dump inland has fallen through, as it is too near division headquarters, and would be sure to draw shell fire, which is becoming more and more frequent and effective. We draw at dusk from main supply depot, and at night issue from our divisional dump in an unsafe spot on the far side of the back of W Beach having to be careful not to show too many lights. Asia keeps us on the Kiviv all day, and too much activity on the beach will always draw a spell of shelling. A cloudy evening. At 11 p.m. the 88th Brigade arrive. December 23rd. It is a fine cold day. 
we now walk about on the beach with our ears always listening for the sound of a gun from Asia or Achibaba, upon hearing which we get ready to fling ourselves to the ground or dive into a dugout. I go along to the headquarters of the 86th and 88th Brigades, both built in the side of a cliff just this side of X Beach, and almost opposite our division headquarters. Their dugouts are delightful, cozy little houses. They are practically safe from shellfire, and form a great contrast to divisional headquarters, dug a little way to the right in trenches which are in full view of the enemy, and in danger of a shell dropping plumb onto them at any moment. The day drags wearily away. There is nothing much to do but bookwork, making up accounts, and visits to the main supply depot. It is an extraordinary thing, but almost every time I stroll over to the supply depot from our office on the cliff, over comes a shell, either from a howitzer on Achi or Quick Dick from Asia. I prefer the howitzer. It gives you a chance to quickly look round for the nearest dugout and dive in, whereas Quick Dick, with its boom, whiz, bang, is on you before you can count two, and leaves you almost gasping wondering that you are still standing alive instead of flying through the air in little bits. Each day victims are claimed. I thought my quartermaster sergeant had got it proper today, but I saw him do a marvelous head-dive behind a mound protecting dug-in stables, which saved him. It makes everybody living on the beach very bad-tempered. At night they drop them over at intervals, but we are one too many for Asia by night. One can distinctly see the flash of the gun, and can count twenty-three slowly before the shell arrives. The French are very clever over dodging these night shells from Asia. A man perched up on a stack of hay watches Asia intently. He sees a flash, blows loudly on a trumpet, and everybody gets to cover like rabbits. Result? Remarkably few casualties. Of course, the flash of the gun does not tell whether the shell is addressed to V Beach or W Beach, and one cannot fail to at times be amused, in spite of the grimness of it all, for the lookout man on V Beach might see the flash and give a mighty blast on his trumpet, whereupon all rush for cover, and twenty-three seconds later the shell swishes over, not to V Beach at all, but to W Beach. The Turkish gunners appear to have their tails very much up, no doubt through the evacuation of Suvla and Anzac. And enemy airmen are very daring, swooping right over our lines and at times dropping an odd bomb or two. Men and transport move about as freely as ever, though, which is such a contrast to Suvla. Though, of course, our line being further inland than it was at Suvla, the enemy have difficulty in reaching the transport with shrapnel. If not probably our transport would not be so reckless. The roads at the foot of the cliff can no longer be used, having been made impassable by being washed right away in parts. December 24th. It is delightful weather, and we continue our life, preparing the figures and accounts to draw the rations at night, and arranging for their issue. Usual shelling all day. In the afternoon, as I walk across the plateau to division headquarters, an enemy aeroplane comes swooping over. I am near a party of men marching, and hear the pop-pop of a machine gun. Almost immediately after, I hear the swish of bullets, and see them kick up the dust round about. At first I can't make it out, 
then it dawns on me that the daring aviator is actually firing on the troops near me i notice that instead of a cross painted on his machine he has a square which is the sign of the bulgarian flying corps i go back to tea with farquhar in his lines dug in trenches on the cliff side over corps headquarters situated further round the cliff from our dugouts as we are at tea four enemy machines sweep over to w beach and shortly after i hear the sound of dropping bombs as they circle round and round our anti-aircraft guns not plentiful endeavor to bring them down but they circle round unconcerned and having discharged about thirty bombs swing round and make back for their lines keeping out to sea off the coast i get back to the beach and find that their bombs have caused many casualties to my great sorrow i learn that cox of the essex has been hit clean with one and also a friend of the same regiment both being killed instantly they had come down from the rest camp to purchase some luxuries for the canteen for christmas day after sticking it all this time to be killed like this just two weeks before the time when the division is to be relieved for good is really far worse luck than met algy wood of the same regiment and now there are no more of the original essex officers left it has been rough to-day especially at imbros which has a very exposed harbor and in consequence it has been possible to issue only a very small percentage of fresh meat it is bad luck for tomorrow is christmas day and i should like to have given the division a full issue of fresh meat however a consignment of christmas puddings has arrived from lady hamilton's fund and will be issued we were promised many other luxuries such as oranges and other fruits but these have not arrived owing to the difficulty of transport by sea and so for the majority of the men of the division and all troops in shore bully beef will take the place of the customary roast beef and turkey december twenty fifth it is very beautiful weather we do the best we can for the troops in the way of supplies but it has to be bully beef and christmas puddings for their dinners the turks are unusually quiet i believe they know that it is our christmas day we have a christmas dinner in our dugout and a very cheery time one of the cheeriest christmas dinners i have ever had parcels from home pooled help to make a good spread and one can make excellent rissoles from bully beef december twenty sixth twenty seventh twenty eighth and twenty ninth visits to brigade and to division headquarters and journeys to and from our dugout office and main supply depot are the order of the day usual shelling far more trying than any we have ever experienced before enemy airplanes now and again try to come over but are driven back by our planes cold but fine we have to send in an estimate of transport required to cart baggage back from battalions to beaches this no doubt means we are off shortly i hope so as i am getting fed up with this diary but it seems strange to be making plans to get off again when we have only just arrived back december thirtieth today we hear the news secretly that we are evacuating hellas altogether they are having a conference at corps headquarters this morning on the plans i am sent for by the engineer officer in charge of works on the beach 
and he questions me closely on the plans that were followed at the last evacuation. But I can tell him little or nothing beyond what I personally observed. I am afraid that we shall not be able to get away supplies and stores so easily as we were able to at Suvla, and quantities will have to be left, for the beaches are under close observation from Yenisher and Kumkali, and now that we have already hoodwinked them once, the second evacuation will have to be done very carefully. Therefore, our only chance of getting away stores is by night, and animals, guns, and personnel must come first. The first thing, therefore, is to get up forward supplies in sufficient quantities to last out the remaining days, and I receive orders to get these up for the 87th and 88th Brigades, for again we are to be last off. I expected this second evacuation. Nearly everybody expected it. We have been told that Ninth Corps would relieve Eighth Corps, but to those of us who experienced the Suvla storm, the idea of hanging on here after Suvla and Anzac had been evacuated was impossible to consider. But this evacuation, we think, will be a very different matter, with the Turks expecting us to endeavor to make it. Transport will be the difficulty during these last few days. But fortunately, the tramway comes in handy tonight in getting up rations to the 86th and 88th Brigades, and we manage successfully. We draw the rations from the main supply depot in bulk, apportion them out to units, and load them on the trucks on the line in the center of the depot itself. Mules then pull them to the slope, down which they run of their own accord to the plateau with men acting as brakesmen. Those trucks which have to be pulled further inland are pulled by mules up a line which runs still nearer to the trenches. The rations are offloaded on arrival at their destination and manhandled over their remaining journey. By this means, much more horse transport is cut out, which can in a few days be evacuated. But before then, this transport must be used solely in getting back surplus kit. We put up the first batch of the reserve supplies. An arduous night, and we get to bed in the small hours of the morning. All day we had intervals of howitzers from Achi and Asia's shells. Not much longer now, thank God. December 31st the last day of a damnable year. Honors in favor of the enemy. Luck all against us. But our turn will come before another year is out. In the morning, the Turks heavily shell our front-line reserve areas, and division headquarters, of course, being only just in rear, gets it badly. All day the beaches suffer. Life on the beaches is like a game of musical chairs. Instead of sitting down on a chair when the music stops, you promptly fling yourself behind cover when a shell arrives. I am a perfect tumbler now, and after the war will give exhibitions of the many different antics that one performs when dodging shells. A New Year's dinner as cheery as the Christmas dinner, but broken by visits to the main supply depot to send off the rations by tram, and then to bed. End of section 22